This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. A tough day at the office for the FTSE 100. Let's put it that way. Down about 1.9% at the close. On the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, the DAX off by 1.4%. Stateside, mild losses, down about a tenth on the S&P 500. And on the NASDAQ as well. Biggest points losers. On the FTSE today, AstraZeneca, British American, Diageo, Unilever. Some of those names, Guy, you'd think were more defensive in nature, but they are bottom of the pile in today's market. And they are all UK companies that are listed on the FTSE 100 that have a great deal of revenue streams that come from outside the UK. I suspect they are all victims of the rise that we've seen in the pound today. 131.45 is where we are trading. John, we're expecting in the next few minutes some headlines to cross, confirming that talks are back on between the UK and the EU. Uh, We'll wait for those headlines as they come. But certainly, uh, we have seen a significant spike in the value of sterling today. And that it's a mechanical process they just get priced back in to the FTSE 100 which is why I think we've probably seen the underperformance that we have today. The talks about talks went well then (laughs) and I'm not even joking these were talks about talks that have generated some talks which means bullish sterling. I've got a similar situation in America as well where seemingly this market believes it is bullish so long as both sides are always talking and if they've stopped talking it's bad and if they're still talking it's okay at some point don't you start to just get fed up of the talking without any results yeah particularly i think in the states as well as as there is this kind of huge elephant in the room in the form of mitch mcconnell who's basically indicating i'm not going anywhere i think he's going to get the final uh, confirmation across the line next week in terms of the supreme court uh so amy coney barrett will get confirmed that's going to be really significant for him. The headline is crossing now, John, on the UK. The UK agreeing to restart, restart trade talks uh, with the EU. Uh, not much action <laughs> in the pound on that. I think we've already slightly seen, seen the price reaction coming through to that. So confirmation of a story uh, that Bloomberg broke a little bit earlier on. They start tomorrow in London. That's exciting, isn't it? And to your point, the much more imminent thing that is happening is in America. We're 13 days away from an election clearly no one wants to own these stimulus talks falling apart the washington post reported that leader mcconnell had told the white house not to agree to a deal didn't believe that speaker pelosi was negotiating in good faith and it would complicate two things one the nomination confirmation of amy coney barrett for the supreme court and two it could exacerbate divisions in the republican party before going to the electorate particularly over the amount of spending there's been. So that's the situation in America. As you say, Leader McConnell's word is the final word at the moment, and it doesn't look like he's budged at all, and everything at the moment just feels like posturing. I don't know if you can say the same thing about the UK. They're ready to resume negotiations later this week. Talks start tomorrow. They've jointly agreed principles for intensified talks. Maybe that's a bit of substance there. Well, the, the word intensified is important, that's actually really important 
um, if we are getting into what the, the Europeans like to call, so, call the so-called tunnel. Basically, you have a media blackout and you have a kind of two-week period in which you, you kind of get really down to nuts and bolts and you're starting to get the kind of text coming together. Um, this is the critical phase. And, and if we get into that and intensified talks kind of suggest that we're getting close to that, then that is, that is the prelude to a deal being done. Now, this deal is very different to the deal that was originally conceived. This is a very, very skinny deal. But it deal, does still mean that you are not going to see the, the huge amount of friction at the beginning of next year um, that you could potentially see on January the 1st. There will potentially be a tariff deal done here. Uh, there looks like there's going to be some sort of uh, deal done uh, when it comes to to state aid. It looks like that maybe the UK has given ground. Barnier was giving ground on sovereignty. Uh, maybe we'll see a deal done on fish as well. This is when it all kinds of... Cu- when it comes together uh, but this is the uh, this is the Downing Street statement so Downing Street tends to the, the way the way the news comes out is that it tends to come out from the UK side via a statement via Downing Street the, the way the news comes out from the EU is in the form of a tweet usually from Michel Barnier so I think we'll look <laughs> forward to that over the next few minutes just to get a kind of sense of of kind of where we're going with this are we entering that's all important tunnel sounds vaguely ridiculous but that's kind of where we are because it is cable 130.150 at 1.6 percent just off session highs look the deadline i know we had a deadline yesterday in dc but i think we all knew that deadline wasn't really a deadline as things stand december 31st is the deadline as things stand there has to be an agreement that needs to be ratified in national parliaments, right, Guy? So I'm not sure how much time you need to do that before no, I you think get to t- December t- 31st. Time is, time is definitely running short, and, and you make the points uh, about getting kind of everything written down, codified, out to national parliaments, agreed, and then moved on. Now, my understanding is that that is still possible at this stage. There is still time to do it, but that time is, is getting very, very short. So... Um, I would have thought that we are, if we're going to get a deal, it needs to to kind of happen soon. And we need to certainly start that intense process, uh, certainly over the next few days. And it looks like potentially that could be happening. I think the fascinating story stateside, John, is that the, I think Senate Republicans appear to be ditching the president. That certainly seems to be the narrative at the moment. There seems to be a complete breakdown within the Republican Party. You talk about the fact that if we were to see a deal and, and there was a kind of there had to be a vote and it was voted down, that would obviously be very bad optics. But I think I think there are pretty bad optics already. I think many Republicans are basically indicating they won't go with the president and that seems to imply that they think he's an electoral liability at this point. Well Leader McConnell is speaking on the Senate floor right now saying the GOP aid bill would provide needed support now. The aid bill that he's discussing of course he's done two things this week one thing that he wanted to do was to take the funds that was left over from the previous aid bill from spring and put them back into things like support for businesses as one idea the second bill was a much narrower smaller bill another aid package in the vicinity of about five six hundred billion dollars that's been discussed many times over the last couple of months that he wants to push through the senate and that's the divide at the moment the leader mcconnell is still pushing this smaller package Yep. about 600 billion and welcome to 2020 where 600 billion is considered small and skinny 
compared to the two trillion plus that Speaker Pelosi's been pushing through the House. Uh, up next, uh, John, we're going to be talking to Hans Vesper. We're going to hear from Hans Vesper. Um, Alex Steele and I talked to him a little bit earlier on, talked to him about 5G and uh, what is happening there, the new iPhone coming out. Uh, you can get it for free if you sign up to their most expensive contracts. How long that lasts, we'll wait and see. The bigger question is, if you were to get that phone, would Google Search be loaded as defaults? The answer is yes. We're going to hear from Hans Vesper, the CEO of Verizon, in just a moment. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Uh, Verizon over in the United States, the biggest carrier, network carrier in the United States, posting numbers that were pretty solid. And part of the uptick in guidance that we also got from the company rests on the fact that the company is now rolling out its 5G product across the United States. Uh, It was one of the launch customers of the new iPhone, the new 5G iPhone. So earlier on, Alex Steele and I caught up with Hans Vesper. He is the CEO and chairman of that business. I started by asking him whether the fact that they've rolled out nationally the 5G product and we now have this new iPhone, does that represent a tipping point for 5G? Yes, I think we are. I mean, we have worked with our strategy for a long time and we've talked about this second half of 2020 to be very important for our execution of 5G. We built the first our fiber and a fiber-rich network and on top of that, we are now both nationwide covering more than 200 million people in 1,800 cities and then we have this so transformative uh, ultra-wideband that we have now launched in 55 cities and we're going to 60 cities by year and we're adding some 19 cities last week. So we're just broadening the network and the experience. And of course, as I said it before, uh, the launch of the iPhone was important because this uh, market, the US market, has such a high penetration of iOS users. So of course, this is an important moment. And we were extremely happy with the launch of the iPhone 12 because all of them have ultra wideband inside the, uh, the four models, which is just to contribute how we are working together with our key partners in this ecosystem. Um, question on then how you sell, how you're selling them. Two, two prong. One, like the visibility now that it's been on sale for a few days, but also you're giving it away for free, right? How, how long can you a want and b afford to do that? So first of all, when it comes to uh, the pre-orders, remember there are two, the pre-orders of two different models right now. There are two others coming the sixth of November. So we are very early in uh, in the pre-orders, just a couple of days, but. We're happy what we're seeing. We see a lot of engagement in our, in our customer base and uh, the traffic in our stores and digitally. So we, we are very happy what we've seen so far. But it's a little bit too early to have any conclusions. Uh, so, so that's where we are on it. And then when it comes to the offerings, we feel really good what we have. I mean, we have the best network. We have now a device that is working on all the things we have built over so many years. But also, we have also worked with our customer with our mix and match, where we have different type of offerings for, for our customers all the way from the, uh, the premium unlimited to the unlimited basic 
where people and our customers can choose. So we feel good about it. And the offering we have in the market with iPhone is a typical offering we would have when we come a new iPhone. And this is not a typical one because it's a 5G. And uh, I think this is probably the second most important launch that the iPhone has done since the start of the iPhone. The first one was, of course, the most important. All right, let's talk about uh, another headline here, and this comes from the DOJ's antitrust case against Google. Uh, the DOJ saying yesterday that Google doled out more than a billion dollars last year to U.S. mobile carriers to distribute its search engine. Um, the companies that they distributed the money to weren't named. Can you help clarify as if Verizon is one of them or not? We are working with all the big uh, uh, brands in this market. I mean, we work with Amazon, Disney, Google, and we have commercial agreements with all of them. We have 120 million consumers uh, on our wireless networks. So of course, they want this type of service. So we have arrangements with all of them. There are no specific uh, in, uh, in a relationship with Google than anybody else. Hans, if I get one of your new iPhones, is Google search going to be the default? Yes, uh, that's part of it. And this is the new iPhone, by the way, which I have in my pocket. Yes, that, that's what we have right now on the phone. But we give optionality on everything we're doing. We're working with all the top brands that our customers want to have. That's how we work. And, and uh, we have the best distribution, the best network, uh, and uh, an A brand. That's why we have all this partnership. And that's why we had our partnership with Apple last week. We have had our partnership with Amazon. We just announced also that we're working with Microsoft on the 5D Mobile Edge company. So that's how this market is working, and that's our strategy. Our strategy is a network of service, and we work with all these prime brands to give to our customers, and we monetize it. Hans Vesper, the CEO of Verizon, talking to Alex Steele and myself a little bit earlier on. Verizon's stock initially moving up. Since then, it has faded. We're just off session lows, trading at 56.93. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Earlier on today, we caught up with Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse looking ahead to the election and the richness in the volatility curve going into year end. Take a listen. For most of September, up until the early part of this month, the uh, close and contested election was the primary risk that investors were focused on, and that was what was reflected in the S&P vol curve. As you, know, as you mentioned, December was the highest point on the curve, which is quite unusual. So investors were positioning for volatility to continue to increase after the election on the assumption that, you know, if it's close, if it's contested, you know, it may take time, for example, if it goes to the Supreme Court for the final decision to be reached. But over the past two to three weeks, we've seen a big change as polling leads, you know, the Biden polling lead has grown. Um, you know, that risk premium in December has come in significantly and is no longer the richest part of the curve. In fact, now it's back to November, which is traditionally how, you know, you would expect things to trade going into a meaningful catalyst. Uh, and even the November vol premium has come in quite a bit. So, you know, a month ago, investors were pricing in about a four and a half percent one day post-election move for the S&P, now down to about 3.5%. So certainly still sizable, certainly still substantial, but you know, that premium is coming in as, you know, as we get into the final days of the race and as the polling leads you know, remain quite large in Biden's favor. Um, and then particularly on the VIX, I would highlight you know, the most 
uh, the, the most activity that we have seen on the VIX has been on the put side. So people playing for uh, a normalization of volatility post-election to such an extent that VIX put volumes now exceed call volumes by the largest on record. And that's quite unusual because usually when you see such an imbalance in, you know, put demand versus call demand, it's usually happening during a time of, you know, big market sell-off, VIX at highs. That's when investors come in to play for normalization of volatility. So we saw it in March of this year. We saw it in 2011, 2008, et cetera. But now we're seeing it with market still near all-time highs and VIX sub-30, right? So I think that just really speaks to you know, how much attention is being paid to the election and how you know substantial that vol premium really got in November, December, that you know, we see such an overwhelming demand for downside VIX puts. Well, let's talk about where volatility is underpriced in your mind. I know you're looking to cyclical names and sectors where you think that is mispriced, Mandy. Just walk us all through that. Yeah, sure. So we, we do think, you know, volatility is underpriced in a lot of cyclical means, given, you know, they are uniquely kind of positioned to uh, either, you know, benefit or uh, to sell off depending on the election outcome. So, you know, in our view, in a Democratic sweep scenario, you know, we do think the probability of a sizable fiscal stimulus goes up uh, in, in that scenario. That should benefit cyclical means, which are you know, also very under-owned. We could see some explosive upside moves post-election if that happens to pass. But now, on the other hand, if we get, you know, a split uh, government, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a Democrat in the White House, Republican in the Senate, or, you know, vice versa, um, we could have, you know, an increased chance of fiscal gridlock, and that would be a drag on growth, which will impact uh, cyclical names more. So we do think owning volatility in these cyclical names makes sense, uh, given where we are, given the rising COVID cases in the, uh, in the fall as well. Um, and on the more directional side, we particularly like looking at upside in, for example, financials. Uh, we do think, you know, that is a trade, you know, especially in a Democratic sweep scenario uh, that would likely play out. Um, so... Mandy, what is it about the sweep scenario that you think you should get some upside protection on financials? Sure. So I think it really comes down to higher fiscal stimulus, higher economic growth, higher bond yields, steeper curve, uh, and that should all benefit the cyclical name. So, you know, if you look back to the 2016 election, right, so what really turned markets around was this expectation of infrastructure spending and higher fiscal spending. And, you know, if you look at what stocks or what sectors really benefited in the immediate aftermath of 2016, financials was one of the, out, uh, was one of the, the sectors that really rallied hard on the back of this, you know, the, the prospect. So I think right now we're in a very similar setup. In the Democratic street scenario, I do think, you know, we're going to get more fiscal stimulus. Financials is really under-owned by institutional investors. The volatility has come in quite a bit in that sector. So owning options look very cheap right now. And from a directional perspective, we think, you know, owning upside call spreads um, post-election really makes sense. Mandy, just a final question for me on the regional divergence you're seeing between, say, Europe, Asia and the United States at the moment. And your thoughts on that, please. Oh, sure. Uh, so one, one of the big divergences that we're seeing is uh, between, especially between U.S. and Europe, is that as we go into earnings season, we are seeing a pickup in single stock volatility in the U.S., whereas we're not seeing that in Europe. Um, now, on the surface, it might mean that people are expecting you know, earnings season to be more important in the U.S., but really, if you dig down deeper, it's really a function of large-cap tech. So the fact that, you know, the top 50 stocks in the, or the, large, the, the S&P is, you know, overwhelmingly dominated by the mega cap tech stocks, and that's where we're really seeing the bid to vault, right? So a lot of upset call buying in tech going into earnings, whereas in Europe, you know, you really don't have that 
tech overweight and as a result, you know, single stock vol um, in general is very muted in Europe relative to the U.S. So I think that's one of the big divergences that we're seeing between U.S. and Europe right now. That was Mandy Zhu of Credit Suisse weighing in on the regional divergences and volatility going into the election. Going into the election, Speaker Pelosi talking about a deal potentially. She wants stimulus and a deal before the election. She wouldn't have talks if she didn't think the president had sway. There will be a stimulus bill. The question is on timing. I think we can all share that sentiment right now. Meanwhile, Minority Leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, saying the vote on scaled-back GOP aid and that plan is a stunt vote. He's speaking on the Senate floor right now. So, Guy, we've got this division still between House Democrats and Senate Republicans, and it's not changing. Speaker Pelosi saying she's pretty happy about the state of relief talks. Yep. That's kind of where it is right now, reading the mood of the room. How to treat restaurants and small venues seems to be something of a sticking point. Um, I would have thought that would be a fairly straightforward issue to deal with. I, I, I wonder why McConnell is doing what he's doing. Um, I guess this close to the election, party politics, uh, the narrative, what is happening in Washington kind of does have an impact. So, so maybe there is, is, is an angle on that. But it's fascinating that you basically got three parties here. And, and the division in the Republican Party is absolutely amazing this close to an election. You would have thought they'd all be on the same page. They are definitely not. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.30 in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson alongside John Farrow. Let's talk about the price action today. A lot of movement. European equities very much under pressure. The FTSE 100 leading the charge lower, down by 1.91%. Now, part of that is down to the fact that we have a very strong British pound today, north of 131 on the cable rate. In fact, 131.72 right now. We're up by 1.73%. This as talks resume between the UK and the EU, and looks like there's some intensification of those talks. Also an incredibly strong session today for the Japanese yen, 104.47 against the US dollar. The dollar index, the Bloomberg dollar index, down by six-tenths of 1%. We have stronger copper, copper north of 7,000 today. Uh, In the commodity space, we also have weaker crude, WTI crude over in the States, down by 3.62%. Uh, We had some uh, inventory data which certainly caused a significant push lower in the price of crude stateside. Brent crude, the global benchmark, down by over 3%, though. So a lot of movement today, and we continue to see this steepening of the curve, which is a significant factor over in the United States. Keep an eye on that. John, you've talked to a lot of people today, as have I, about this yield curve steepening we're seeing stateside. Is it seen as sustainable And is there a sense that if it does go too far that the Fed will step on it? So first question, is it sustainable? What are we seeing right now? Is that a squeeze or something positioning on fundamentals? I caught up with someone from Nuveen, Tony Rodriguez today, who said he thinks it's just a squeeze, point one. Point two, will the Fed step on it? Possibly. I don't know what level the Fed starts to step in. Loretta Mester of the Cleveland Fed has talked up the idea that if yields start to drift higher, they can step back in. I'd also question just how self-limiting any potential Treasury market sell-off would be. 
the tolerance for higher rates in an economy which has just had trillions of dollars of debt added to it, I would say has diminished greatly over the last 12 oh, months. Absolutely. I don't think that's a controversial statement to make. Steve Major of HSBC made the same argument with me in the past week as well. So I think that's something we have to think about, just how self-limiting a potential sell-off in the Treasury market would be. I don't know if that answers your question, Kai, but it's at least some of the arguments out there at the moment. Yeah, I'm just... I, suggest it, it, it's going to be difficult to get yields higher on a sustainable basis. I, I guess my question really comes down to, do you want to, are, are you prepared to step in and buy financials at this point based on the fact that we have seen this, this curve move in the way that it has? Um, even if it kind of stays where it is now, is that enough of an argument to make that shift? Now, the argument probably is yes, but to a point. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering what the ripple effect off the back of it is. If you are starting sure. to kind of extrapolate out into those those other kind of those those other effects, what is your level of sensitivity to the kind of genesis of this story, which is is that steeper curve? Well, it's all about risk reward, and how many times have we been told there is an asymmetric risk profile in the Treasury market right now? That Treasury yields don't rally much on bad news, but they seem to sell off lots on good news. I don't know if you still believe that's the case with yields back up to 80 basis points away from 60, 70, but that's certainly an argument I've heard a million times. And Dan Skelly of Morgan Stanley just took that out another step, just extrapolated that further from the bond market to the equity market and said, look at financials right now. Big asymmetric risk profile. They've been left for dead. Some of them have through much of this year after the pandemic. They haven't rallied back as much as the rest of the market has. And he believes if we get a decent dose of good news, for every ounce of good news, you'll get a bigger rally than you will get a sell-off for every ounce of bad news. And I think many people share that view. The problem I would have with the financials at the moment, just on a long-term basis, and you use the word sustainable, if you truly believe that to get financials higher, you need that curve steeper for yields to build, for rates to go up and all that good stuff, that's a much bigger ask. Eric Nielsen of Unicredit, possibly the most optimistic guy <laughs> on the Eurozone and on Europe and on all those things. And to be fair to him, he's been right. When, other, when people have thrown doom and gloom at the continent, he's had to come out and say, look, it's not going to break up. It didn't, and he's been right. But I asked him the other day, I think it was yesterday, can Europe engineer a recovery that actually leads to higher interest rates? Can they achieve something? in this cycle that they didn't in the previous one and he said no I don't think they can now that should tell you everything you need to know about how difficult it's going to be for financials through most of this recovery doesn't mean they're not going to rally it just means there's going to be bigger opportunities elsewhere because they'll be held back by monetary policy and, and where rates are yeah, I think your point about self-sustaining is really important. I think we, we often talk about sort of debt to GDP. I think that that's probably almost the wrong chart to be looking at at the moment. I think you want to be looking at interest payments to GDP. And, and clearly that number has come down significantly in terms of the average interest rate that, for instance, the U.S. has to pay. Now, aggregated up, clearly the level of interest that is being paid is still incredibly high. But it, you, you need that very low interest rate now to, to to make all of the debt sustainable. If you were to see a significant move higher, then as then as Stephen says, then ultimately that would be self limiting yeah. because because it just simply doesn't work. But the average inflation rate has absolutely collapsed. 
I, I believe in the functioning of the sovereign debt market. So I, I don't believe that's going to fall apart anytime soon. I think that if rates push too high and people lose faith in the economic recovery because of it, that's a self-limiting sell-off because people will gravitate back towards sovereigns in that environment. The other thing I would worry about as well is that spreads can remain tight in that environment, but ultimately if you're a company issuing debt, if Treasury yields are going up, then it's it's likely if spreads stay consistent and remain the same in that environment, it's likely that you'll be high, paying higher interest on that debt as well. The good news, I would say, is that what has happened when people have been issuing debt this time around coming out through this crisis, yes, they've piled a lot of debt on, but also a lot of that debt has been used to extend the profile the maturity profile of the debt at some of these corporations. So there is some good news out there that they've locked in these in low interest rates for a very, very long time. So it's not as if there's this big maturity wall that's around the corner for these companies that haven't financed themselves. A lot of financing has been done this year. I think perhaps it's a little bit more pertinent, this argument, to the sovereign side. I think there's just a huge assumption that it just doesn't work with higher rates and higher yields. And when I last caught up with Bob Prince at Bridgewater, he made this point too, that for every economic downturn, we have added even more debt. Yep. And in every recovery, our tolerance for higher interest rates has diminished. And I imagine that holds true, Guy. Absolutely. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital. On DAB Digital Radio, you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. Earlier on today, we caught up with Adina Friedman, the NASDAQ president and CEO, on a really decent quarter off the back of big volume and volatility in markets. Take a listen. So we're, we're very pleased with our earnings results this, this morning. And we grew 13% on the top line and 20% on the bottom line on, uh, in the third quarter. And when we look at the, the catalyst for growth, it is certainly the robust market environment, but also our businesses are leaning into longer-term trends as well. So we have a large technology business that drives, uh, that creates markets as well as reg tech and, and financial crime technology that, that supports the industry in managing the, the, the challenges of operating in this environment, particularly in the, the digital environment that we're operating in. Our solutions are very easy to implement and can uh, provide uh, assurances across a diversified and remote environment. And then we also have our data analytics platform and our index franchise that is really leaning into a lot of longer-term investor trends and investor needs um, from a data perspective. So we have those long-term trends, but then we have the, the shorter-term backdrop that you mentioned before with the strong market performance in terms of volumes and share ish and new issuances into the market, as well as market cap, uh, the market cap of the indexes that we operate has also been very strong in the year. So I think short-term and long-term, we're seeing some strong trends for NASDAQ. Just on the trading volumes, Adina, that has really lifted the market services revenue this morning, looking at the figures from you guys, I just wonder, the re-engagement of retail, the contribution to some of the volume there, that shift, have you got any thoughts on that, whether it's likely to stay with us beyond COVID, beyond 2020? Yeah, we are seeing two key trends really driving the volumes in the market this year. The first is market volatility, and that comes from the fact that if investors have different opinions as to what might happen next, they're going to express these opinions in the market, and that creates some more volatility and more volumes. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing this real, a real change in the participation of retail. It started actually with the online brokers going to a zero-commission environment. So that really took a major friction out of the market. 
And our job as a market operator is to minimize friction in order to maximize investor access. So taking that friction out was certainly a catalyst to the growth of retail investors. And then, of course, with the market disruption in March, it gave them an opportunity to come in on what they would see as opportunities to come in on on stocks that had become a lot cheaper on the back of the the, um, beginning of the pandemic. So you had two catalysts bring them in. Now, in terms of them staying in the market, I think that we are seeing a new generation of investors coming in. We do anticipate, and the online brokerage firms have also said, that they do anticipate continued elevated participation from retail going forward. But it may not be at the exact same levels as we're seeing now. I think there's some that are really riding the current short-term situation and some that are learning the markets and getting excited to be here. Our job is to make sure that we educate those investors, make sure that they're informed as they're participating in the markets. And we've launched an investor education portal alongside the industry to make sure that this new era of investors stay stay with us for the long term. I did just want to talk about politics just briefly with two weeks to go until this election. Undoubtedly, your success, the success of Wall Street, does draw a divide, a stark contrast with, say, Main Street right now. And I do wonder from your position at the moment if you're worried that your success will make you a target. We're already hearing things about financial transaction taxes. What are the response from you at the moment as a company to those kind of things, Adina? Well, I think specific to the financial transaction tax, we've been a strong opponent to that tax. There have been taxes levied in other countries in the past on financial transactions. And the net result is that investors end up paying more to participate in the market, which, of course, creates friction, which then drives them out of the market. And that then widens spreads and lowers liquidity. And in today's environment with the volatility we are experiencing, our job is to make sure we're trying to maximize liquidity to to create as stable a market as possible. If you create friction with a financial transaction tax, you're basically driving investors out of the market because they're the ones who will pay the tax. That's Dina Friedman there of NASDAQ, the president and CEO. And you do wonder, Guy, if success does make you a target of politicians going into the next election cycle. Yeah, there's also this this, this whole issue, which there is a caveat, uh, which is that Bloomberg's heavily involved in this space, about data and the availability of it and the price of it, which I think is going to be something of a story for these, for these exchanges as well. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. On Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable 548. So one of the stories associated with COVID-19 has been a huge demand for used vehicles. The reason being, well, twofold. Firstly, we have seen restrictions at major car plants causing a shortage of new vehicles. But the second, probably more important factor is that people simply want to avoid public transport, as a result of which prices have absolutely shot up. In fact, they are one of the biggest contributing factors to inflation in the United States right now. AutoNation is one of the biggest US dealers of cars, both used and new in the United States. Its profit earlier hitting a record on that big demand rebound. Alex Steele and I caught up with its chairman and CEO, Mike Jackson, to talk about what's going on. Yeah, I think of uh, everything that was said there in the opening. The most significant and important is that coming out of shelter in place in America, uh, there's been a significant shift and demand for personal mobility. And um, I think this is a... Uh, resurgence of America's love affair with the automobile 
and the security, freedom, the ability to go where they want, when they want, how they went, with who they want, and a movement away from shared mobility. And this has created uh, significant demand across the entire spectrum from pre-owned to new. Now, on new, we have significant shortages due to the plant closings from 8 to 12 weeks, depending on the manufacturer. And as they gradually restart, though, there is a significant shortage of uh, new vehicles. I think for the industry, inventory levels are down 25, 30 percent from a year ago, almost a million units. So customers coming in that maybe would have bought new, they really want something, though, for personal mobility. So uh, we present pre-owned to them and they make that choice. So this combination of overall demand, shortages on new, uh, have increased uh, even greater demand for pre-owned. And so since we have a supply uh, constriction, uh, Mm -hmm. we've balanced pricing that we to make up for the volume shortages. And it uh, combined that with the cost control. and We had the best quarter ever. So, Mike, question, how long do you think the supply issues are going to last for? I mean, is it like a get a vaccine in the arm, everything's back to normal? Give me some perspective on that. So, first, I think the shift on the demand is longer term and uh, will will still be there uh, going forward. The supply issue uh, has been difficult and has taken longer than what the manufacturers originally told us. We thought we'd have improvement in the third quarter. It didn't happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen in the... Fourth quarter. So I think we're into next year, uh, first quarter, second quarter of next year. And you have to understand for the manufacturers, they had to introduce social distancing into the plants. They have to test constantly. If they have a situation, they have to do what's appropriate. And this is a whole supply chain that can be disrupted. Plus, there's transportation issues. So it is taking longer on the supply side. So I think it's into the first quarter, uh, second quarter next year before the supply uh, is readily available. Mike, when that happens, does it just ripple straight into the used car market? Do people buy a new car rather than a used car? I ask the question because at the moment, used car inflation is one of the biggest components of a drive higher in U.S. inflation that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, it's very difficult to predict exactly how it's going to unfold. Uh, But uh, the principles that uh, are there is there's higher retail demand for automobiles. In principle, and uh, I should absolutely state that that is underpinned with extraordinarily low interest rates that all the evidence will be available for our consumers for years to come. So we have higher demand with very affordable financing. It's a very powerful combination. Now, exactly how it gets rebalanced as inventories approve on the new vehicle side is very difficult to predict. But uh, automotive retail will do well next year. That's for sure. And Um, we'll manage the transition. So, Mike, something that's also happening will be a presidential election. Um, And clearly, uh, if we get a President Biden, that would be a huge sea change in um, alternative energy, potentially for EV adoption. Um, Mary Nichols, who really runs policy in California for EVs, is sort of rumored to maybe have his EPA, etc. How do you think that market can develop if we change a president's? Well, I, I, regardless of who's president, the industry's embracing of electrification has already happened. Uh, we're past that. The manufacturers are investing over $200 billion of capital in the transition from an internal combustion engine into electrification. 
that commitment is there. It's made. And uh, we have very exciting electric vehicles that, that AutoNation is going to be selling already today and in the future. And all you have to do is look at last night's announcement of the GMC Hummer. Oh, my God, I was watching that, and it put a smile on my face because this moment epitomizes It's a metaphor for the transformation of General Motors in one vehicle. Imagine the Hummer had to be shut down years ago as being completely out of favor, and they completely reinvented as a pure electric vehicle that is so fun, so exciting, so spectacular. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really just wonderful to see. And we're going to be selling those Hummers as a retailer, and, and we have the Porsche to con, and the list goes on and on. So electrification is here regardless of who's president. Mike Jackson, the CEO of Auto Nation, joining Alex Steele and I a little bit earlier on. Um, one thing that may stand in the way of electrification is significantly cheaper oil prices. Brent crude now down by 3.5%. WTI crude sub 40 again. John down by 4.2%. Copper, yeah. though, through 7,000 today. The pound's up, the yen's up. Equities generally a little lower. Yeah, I wouldn't underplay the China story. I know you've been on top no. of it as well. Chinese currency stronger, copper building up again. I know, do know there's a supply disruption story that's been with copper through the whole of this year, basically. But that demand story has come back in China, and I think we're seeing some China trades really start to emerge in a much more prominent way in the last month or so. be interesting to see whether the PBOC gets in the way of that yuan rally that we have seen thus far. No evidence, well, a little evidence so far. Uh, they have taken some steps, but the kind of the big kind of we are stopping this here and now, maybe yet still to come. Maybe after the election, that moment will happen. From John and I, I hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.